0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of American Billiard Radio. It is March 13th, 2014. Got a busy weekend coming up here with the Allen Hopkins Jr. Super Billiard Expo going on in Edison, New Jersey. It promises to be uh, a really fun time. There's gonna be a lot of good stuff going on and a lot of fun people to see and hang out with. So uh, if you're in the area or if you can get out there, be sure and uh, go check it out. Uh, It's well worth the time to do so. Uh, Also this weekend, March 15th, which is Saturday, it marks the 64th anniversary of the death of Ralph Greenleaf, arguably one of the world's greatest uh, straight pool players or 14-1 14-1 continuous pool whatever you would like to call it he was truly a phenomenon that's uh, that's for sure greenleaf was playing from the time that he was very small uh and just immediately started getting people's attention by the time he was 17 he was playing in world championships against the pros and doing quite well as a matter of fact By the time he was 19, he had taken his first world title. Uh, By the time he was 20, he was already running 155 balls in a row, uh, which I certainly could not do at the age of 20. I don't think I could do that now. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if if most of you, be honest with yourself, you probably could not either. This guy was a truly phenomenal player. Uh, And he went on to win title after title I want to say he racked up about 19 or 20 different world championships titles uh, by the time that 1937 rolled around and uh, but unfortunately Ralph got wrapped up in uh, in uh, his self he wrapped up he got wrapped up in uh, alcohol and some different things and uh, went through a couple of marriages and uh, it really didn't end well for him he ended up dying early Um, you know 50 is is pretty young Uh, for anybody, uh, much less, uh, you know, a a pool player. And so it's a tragic story. It truly is. Nonetheless, excuse me, nonetheless, he accomplished uh, just world record after world record, um, probably the youngest person in history to ever do so. And uh, we certainly want to, you know, give him props for the things that he accomplished. And in light of the anniversary of his death, we decided to talk to a gentleman by the name of J.D. Dolan, who happens to be an accomplished author who is uh, writing a book about uh, Greenleaf's uh, experiences. And it's not so much a historical account as it is a, uh, hmm, let's say, a, a representation uh, of some of the things that he went through. Uh, a fictional account, maybe, I guess that would be more accurate. Uh, Mr. Dolan is an accomplished writer. He uh, His work has appeared in uh, such places as Esquire. He is a recipient of a National Endowments for the Arts Fellowship. Uh, his first book, Phoenix, A Brother's Life uh, was acclaimed one of the best books of the year by the LA Times and uh, I have personally met him and uh, gotten my butt beat at some One Pocket <laughs> by by J.D. Dolan uh, and I think it, his uh, book is going to be really exciting so we decided to talk to him a little bit more about that and uh, about uh, what the uh, what. The schedule of uh, how things are coming along, and uh, this is what he had to say. So, J.D., I understand that you're writing a book about uh, the life of Ralph Greenleaf. How did you, um, you know, how did you come up with the idea? What made you decide to to write about Ralph?
1: Well, I went to graduate school in Syracuse, New York, and uh, the first thing I did when I got to Syracuse was go to Caps Q Club, which was this kind of CD pool room there, and uh, I met Babe Cranfield, who was world champion, straight pool, in 1964, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to know him while I was uh, in Syracuse, uh, We became good friends. And he started telling me about this guy named Ralph Greenleaf, who was better than everybody. He said, better than anybody. Hmm. And I was—it really fascinated me to have this guy who who had been the best at one point. Uh, a lot of people said um, he was one of the best, best. Babe was one of the best straight pool players ever, um, but not in competition. Uh, but. Um, that he was telling me about this guy who a lot of people had never heard of him. I'd never heard of him. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking into it, and Greenleaf was a huge star. I mean, he was Illinois state champion when he was, I think, 12. Um, He was in the world championships when he was 14 and came in second or third. Um, And he won his first one in 1919. Pretty much for the next 20 years, he was Either world champion or uh, or close to it, right? Right. But it and you know this is a guy who was like Babe Ruth. He made as much money as Babe Ruth in the twenties. He made a fortune. Toured on the Vaudeville circuit. Played at the Palace Theater. Um, He was just uh, the best, and he'd fallen off the map. It was like he didn't exist. It would be like if somebody said, you know. some years from now, who was Tiger Woods or who was Roger Federer? Right. right. Um, and so that's how I became interested in the story, because it seemed like this guy had just been utterly forgotten. Yeah. yeah. And as I looked into it, I found out that he had.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, he for a long time, uh, he was buried uh, in Monmouth, Illinois, the town where he was born and raised. Right. Um, but for decades he didn't even have a headstone on his grave.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a pity. And, you know, it's not that, uh, I I mean, I understand how his, his life ended up, but on the flip side of that, I'm sure that him being less remembered had everything to do with the stars that followed him. You know what I mean? It was like, Moscone was immediately there so it wasn't uh I, and I want to say it wasn't his fault because it was partially his fault but but at the same time it, his replacement was sort of already in place so to speak you know um I'm not I'm not sure what do you mean well you know it was Brunswick's uh what's the word uh, modus it was their regular um you know, there's a word I'm looking for, uh, agenda. Monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, of course, it was her monopoly. But they always had a star. They always had, you know, a golden boy. They always had sort of the face to pool. And I think that uh, that probably by the time that things went south between Brunswick and Ralph, they probably already had their eyes uh, uh, on Moscone as being their golden boy anyway. So. they uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> may have they had a number of people who, who worked with them jimmy karras did yeah um and, and you know hoppy and and uh, sure. uh, a lot of others um but i mean pool kind of rose and 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 fell with greenleaf mm-hmm. um it, it you know when Mo- moscone came along it wasn't the same sport it didn't have the same popularity um it uh it had really lost a lot of its luster Right. Um with Greenleaf. I mean you know, when we when we think about Pool uh being uh, this uh, you know, highfalutin game, this this uh elegant game. And you know, remember that picture of uh, Danny DiLiberto and Mike Siegel and Jim Rympe, I think it was called the Roadrunners.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Those guys standing in front of a you know, Rolls Royce. Um that that kind of comes from Greenleaf, this notion that, that there was a lot of glamour attached to it. yeah. And that was all from Greenleaf during during that period, during the 20s and even into the 30s, even into the Depression. Yeah,
0: yeah, this is true. This is true. Yeah, he, there's no doubt about it. He made quite the impact. There's, there's uh, you know, household name, I think, would be an understatement at that point.
1: At that point, yeah, but, but now even a lot of pool players have never, never heard of
2: green
0: leaf. Yeah, this is true, you know, and that I guess that's a, a, a good contrast to make. Um, as a matter of fact, somebody um, asked on um, the AZ Billiard Forum, uh, I posted up the opportunity for them to ask questions, and somebody made the comment or asked the question, you know, is there a modern-day comparison to a figure like Greenleaf and you know the closest thing I could think of would maybe be like someone like Fats and only because uh Minnesota Fats and not well you know I know I know (laughs) don't get me wrong yeah don't get me wrong Uh, not that uh their accomplishments were anywhere near the same I only meant to 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 say that uh he marketed himself to the point where a lot of people had heard of him. Really, is all that you know, as far as well known as being well known is concerned. That was oh all sure.
1: Fats, Fats was uh, a great promoter, right, right, uh, right, of himself, and he made a big that. spectacle Fats, too. Fats actually idolized Greenlee.
0: Yeah, I would um, imagine
2: so. And I
1: don't, I don't think Fats had any any illusions about his <laughs> abilities or stuff. He may have marked, you know, a great game, but he he knew. Who yeah. the real players were, right, right, right. Um, the closest I, I would say in this day and age actually uh, is in Britain, and that would be Ronnie O'Sullivan in yeah. uh, snooker. Yeah. Um, if you look at the way Ronnie plays, um, and and the kind of ups and downs of his career, where he'll sort of disappear for a year, yeah. um, and I don't know if he had substance abuse problems uh, the way Greenleaf did. Um, but Ronnie O'Sullivan comes the, the closest. He's, I think, he's the current uh, world champion yeah. uh, in snooker. Um, but yet, you know, I knew a lot of people who were friends with Greenleaf. I talked to his uh, members of his family who were still alive, um, and you know, friends who knew him, most of those people have died off too. Yeah. But um, the way I heard a lot of those people talk about Greenleaf is the way that Ronnie O'Sullivan plays.
0: Sure. Did Ralph have any, did they have any kids? No. Yeah. Okay, I didn't think, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I've read a lot about him, I just didn't think I remembered hearing anything about him having any kids, so I just wanted to make sure. Um, somebody else asked, um, Kimberly Griffiths from Straight Shots asked if, uh, she said that he, she believes that he was offered some roles in a movie or movies. Um, do you know anything about that?
1: don't know about that I mean they they did go out to the coast after uh, the his last world championship in 37 um, I don't think anything ever came of it yeah but but he was out there
0: right right um, do you know you know about the situation where he got banned and uh, or barred excuse me from participating uh, in 46 which obviously Mm -hmm. resulted in the whole lawsuit thing going down uh somebody else asked about um well uh, and i was reading the story from uh what's his name uh dyer and Mm -hmm. he said well the question was asked what do you think that he that, that that greenleaf thought about charlie peterson being the one uh that basically came out and barred him um you know, Ralph obviously blamed Brunswick for it, but technically speaking, it was Charlie who said it. So, um, you know, the question is, you know, what do you think he thought about uh, Charlie Peterson?
1: Uh, I don't know what he thought about him personally. Um, I, don't, I haven't really followed that. That's kind of beyond the, the point where I'm writing about it. I mean, I know about it. Right. Um, he had other problems with Brunswick before that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a, a lot of players did. Yeah. Um, You know, they were very powerful. Um, But I imagine whatever was going on was at at the behest of
0: Brunswick. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I expected. I expect to be the case. I think uh, Charlie just may have been the mouthpiece. And, of course, being, uh, you know, under contract with Brunswick, like so many of them were, he probably knew better than uh, than to publicly defy their wishes, so to speak. Yeah. So, you and know. also,
1: frankly, frankly, at that point, Ralph may have been pretty difficult to deal with. I mean, he was yeah. a chronic alcoholic. Right. And, um, he, you know, he, he was difficult even during his prime.
2: Yeah.
1: And so in those later years where he was an alcoholic and uh, was probably doing some other stuff, too, drugs, um, uh, you know, he, yeah. he would have been a difficult person to deal with, and you know, from their standpoint, they uh, they wanted to try to create a wholesome image for Pool. That was their uh, right, right, right. I think that was their goal, particularly you know, sort of post-war, uh, all these GIs coming back, and I think that was part of what killed Pool is that everybody was moving to the suburbs.
2: That was the rise of bowling alleys and uh, golf courses and stuff like that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Matter of fact, that that clean billiards thing had been going on for uh, quite a while. If I remember correctly, and I always get this date mixed up, but it was either 1913 or 1916, maybe. Brunswick put out a a statement, um, and I found it in one of their catalogs somewhere, they were not going to any longer recognize the terminology of the word pool because it was obsolete and had bad connotations and they basically wanted to change the terminology to pocket billiards because yeah, actually,
1: there was a guy uh, who big was deal the president of the roomkeepers association um, uh, who wrote about that in billiards magazine mm-hmm. and uh, he he would write these kind of Long moralistic
2: kind
0: yeah. of uh, Wadley, I think, uh, is what his name pieces was
1: pieces about about how it was r- ruining the game and and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, they're kind of funny to read. Uh, oh,
2: Greenleaf yeah.
1: hated that hated that guy. By the way, <laughs> um, he he threatened to keep uh, after Ralph's father died in 1924. Ralph was uh, sick and uh you know probably dealing with that death and uh he wanted to get a break from uh this you know grueling schedule that he was on yeah. and they didn't want to let him do that and they threatened him and said uh, you know you'll never play pool again <laughs> pocket billiards they might have said yeah. yeah um but um of course he did but he uh, he couldn't uh, stand the guy and and mrs. Greenleaf, nay who was uh, wonderful uh, she uh, referred to uh, this guy as a nasty little fuss budget <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh he was let me tell you you know and I don't not that I knew him personally obviously but um, I have um, read so many transcripts of the of the of those speeches that he gave and uh, I you know and I even wrote a little something about this previously, and you can find it in the history section on AZ, but um, the the guy, he had to have... I, I mean, ah, man, I'll put it to you this way. They were so adamant about this Clean Billiards um, uh, program. I mean, they were trying to literally shut other rooms down because of the you know unpleasant you know doings at these other places they thought that it was sure. doing billiards so much harm that they formed this illinois billiards association room room owners um right. spe- specifically with the intent of shutting some of these other rooms down and right. uh, i even remember one of the speeches that he gave where uh I think his name was Thomas Wadley, if I don't remember, if I'm remembering cor- correctly, at least it was Thomas at one point. He said that they had shut down in, in a year, they had shut, shut down somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 rooms because of the unpleasant nature of the things that were going on. Now, when this got up in t- closer into the 20s and 30s, um, as you also are aware, the organized crime was serious business in Chicago and you know you can go back and look at some of the uh gangland turf that was that was delineated on a map and somebody all of these billiard rooms fell into somebody's territory as far as the gang ownership and control was concerned so it scares me to think that these guys were out there sh- trying to shut down rooms of these gangsters because that's where they would do their illicit activities and whatnot. I mean, they even went so far as to uh, have these posters printed up in Billiards Magazine that you could stick in your window that says, you know, don't drink your poisons here; take your liquor elsewhere, you know, da-da-da-da. I mean, they went about it very blatantly and very much out in the open. And the point being that this guy had to have a lot of nerve, to uh, go up some, against some of these organized crime guys and shut their rooms down. I, I, if I were him, I would have been uh, sleeping with one eye open <laughs> for for that matter. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I
1: don't know if he was trying to shut down those rooms. I think, you know, a room in those days could have been a barber shop. I mean, sure. every place had a pool table. I yeah. mean, a drugstore had a pool table. But, right. I mean, every men's club had pool tables. Every hotel had tables I mean, Right. Right. They were everywhere. But they were, but everywhere. I think uh, Brunswick, you know, wanted to kind of, uh, in a way, kind of deny the, its past. Um, I yeah. mean, pool has always had the upper class and the lower class.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, there's something that Dave Cranfield always used to talk about. Um, and he said, you know, pool never had the middle class. Mm-hmm. He said that's you know what he saw as the, the problem with the sport is that it, uh, it it didn't have the middle class. It was uh, you know George Plimpton with the uh, the pool table in his uh, Upper East Side uh, apartment, or uh, it was you know uh, you know Hard Times Billiards in Bellflower.
0: Yeah, no, this is true. It has always been the the uh, the dual life. You know the private side, the public side. Um, the upper class and the lower class. There's always mm-hmm. the two. As a matter of fact, as soon as billiards was allowed in the public at all, that mm-hmm. you know that became the birth of the pool shark. At that point, you know, because people uh, they just like every other game in the world, somebody would try to trick you to win when there was money involved. Sure. So, anyway, let me take a quick break, JD, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll. Uh, while we take a break, let's let them listen to some uh, clips from uh, Ralph's Widow, and uh, we'll be right back. Go, 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 okay, okay,
3: okay. At night, he'd always play with a tuxedo, and the afternoon, he'd wear something in the sports line. Well, Ralph was tall and he was slim. He had long, slim fingers and long, dark eyelashes and the bluest eyes you ever saw. They were as blue as the Mediterranean. Well, anyway, when the game was 100 points for a tournament, he, he ran a 100. Then again, when it was a 100, he scratched and ran 101. Then again, when they changed the game... To 125 points, he ran 125, and then the following year he scratched and ran 126. So you see, he made and broke his own world records. These records weren't played on these small tables with the big pockets, with the small balls. With a, they were played on a five by ten table with a forty-five rubber, with a green cloth, number one Simonas, that came from Belgium. And the ivory ball, the cue ball was an ivory ball, and the huge balls they played with just split the pocket. If it touched anything, it wouldn't go in. You had to pocket those balls and split the pocket. Very seldom do you scratch in that game because the pockets were so small they came instead of uh, yawning open with a wide front it was cut square the same amount in the back as the front so the ball if it hung in that pocket if it didn't go right in with the right speed it would hang in the pocket or bounce halfway across the table it was a very tough game and the best player always in those days had the best of it Because when you were a good player, you couldn't lose. And that's why Ralph loved the game, because it was science and it was scientific. Now I'm telling you all this because I think that is a way so as to introduce you just to the Greenleaf background. Then you can see for yourself that why Greenleaf was Greenleaf and why he wasn't like any pool player or billiard player in America. Now I can tell you some very fine billiard players in America is Willie Hoppy, a fine gentleman and a lovely person with the best disposition and most even temperament of any man I ever met. Never got ruffled, never got excited, always a gentleman. And then there was young Jake Schaefer. I didn't have the pleasure of meeting Jake Schaefer's father, but Jake Schaefer 2nd the, the what a billiard player he was. He was magnificent. I think they come from a German strain. Anyway, he was a gentleman, and I really think that he had a marvelous personality. It's sort of uh, You'd never think of him as a billiard player. He looked like uh, he might be uh, out in the golf course riding the ponies in a polo match he great outdoor looking man that's the look he had now well Hoppy was the banker type the insurance type the type that uh, uh, you would trust you know and invest your money with that's the type Hoppy was but Schaefer was a devil-may-care who never gave a darn what he he said what he thought, and he thought what he said, and if he stepped on anybody's toes, well, it's too bad about the toes. That was the man Schaefer was, and I really admired him. He was never two-faced and always outspoken. They tell me his father was the most magnificent balkline player that ever lived.
0: And we're back, and we're talking with author J.D. Dolan about his upcoming book uh, about the life of Ralph Greenleaf. Um, you know, how many times did you were you able to speak uh, to his widow?
1: I never got to talk to her, but I uh, a couple of people gave me tape. Okay,
2: okay, that
1: she had made. Gotcha. Um, the first that was the first big break I had when I was trying to write this novel. I thought at first. Nobody's ever heard of this guy. I can just make everything up. <laughs> and I even contacted Mike Shamos, um, uh, and I said, you know, what do you what do you know about uh, this guy Ralph Greenleaf? What's out there on him? And he said, that's easy. There is nothing. Uh, right. That was his, his whole message to me. Uh, but since then, I I, I kept researching and kept you know looking at stuff. It was harder back when I started this thing because we didn't have the in the way that we do today. right? But I uh, ended up with some family letters that were written by Greenleaf's sister, uh, Nettie, and uh, family photos of their cottage in Bosman, Maryland, and um, and then these tapes that Mrs. Greenleaf had made. I think she wanted to write a book, and these were sort of going to be fashioned in some kind of book, talking about her life and times Ah, with Ralph. Okay,
2: okay. Um,
1: And uh, she was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, she's more interesting than Ralph is. (laughs) Um, And I think she's... um, And she really loved him. She just adored him. And they had a very um, passionate, kind of volatile relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, He... Uh, I've heard more than once uh, was, you know, sort of physically abusive with her. She was also physically abusive with him Mm -hmm. Um, at the 1933 world championship. She smashed him over the head with an ashtray and uh, he (laughs) filed for divorce uh, immediately. Um, And then, you know, promptly kind of like fell off the earth for a couple of years until she found him and kind of cleaned him up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, she sounds like uh, she would be a riot to talk to. To be honest with you, I, I, she was great. I mean, she was
1: a vaudeville star uh, before she met Ralph. Uh, her stage name was Princess Tay Te, the Oriental Nightingale. That was <laughs> her stage name. Um, but her <clears> friends called her May. Uh, 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 that's what she was known by. Right, right. And uh, she was she was just a very vibrant, uh, educated. Uh, beautiful uh, woman. She was just great.
0: Well, that sounds like it would certainly help um, with getting a feel for who he was uh, as far as the writing is concerned. That must have been uh, an invaluable tool. Tell us um, a little bit more about what the book entails.
1: Well, I'm I'm focusing kind of on their life together, and i i it opens on uh, when they meet, which is in
2: 1924,
1: mm-hmm. and um, and then it goes up through uh, 1937. Okay. And uh, I've got uh, another character in there who's who's probably some version of, of a number of players we we know about. Dave would certainly be one of them, but also probably uh, uh, Moscone, Mm-hmm. um and uh Karis, Jimmy Carus and Andy Ponzi um it's 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 really my own invention this 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 other character mm, okay. um but you know I I I talked to Jimmy Carus I talked to Irving Crane um a lot of these guys really really looked up to Greenleaf.
0: Yeah um yeah, yeah. well I think so, um Probably Moscone did too, to a certain extent. I mean, oh, sure, at, all those guys. Did. At least a, in the did. beginning, yeah. at least you know, I don't know about later on, but at least in the beginning, I think they probably did.
1: Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, they—they they, you know, uh, Mrs. Greenleaf May talks about that summer that she, the first summer that she and Ralph were together in 1924, and she had to stay in Philadelphia to make uh, Aileen Stanley's wardrobe. This was a, a recording star, Aileen Stanley, mm-hmm. she was a friend of May's, and May had agreed to make her wardrobe and was staying in Philadelphia the whole summer, which really annoyed Ralph. So Ralph went down to Allinger's every day and played this little kid who just adored him, uh, but his name was Andy D'Alessandro, and Andy D'Alessandro later changed his name to Andy Ponzi after exactly. the, uh, the Ponzi scheme. Yeah,
0: exactly. yeah. That's interesting story how he got how Ponzi got his beginning uh hanging out with Greenleaf. That's funny.
1: Yeah, well he you know, he was a great player, but uh he just would be there every day in his sneakers and his little, you know, duck trousers.
2: Um
1: <laughs> and just, you know, playing Greenleaf every day. He was there. And uh, you know, later he he became, you know, really good. He was a great player. And he would go around to uh, uh, these pool rooms, and nobody knew who he was. He just looked like this little kid. Yeah. And uh, he would tell people about you and he would laugh, you know, a cigarette in his mouth, and would go, <laughs> uh, you know, telling them these stories about how it was just like robbing these people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because you know, he didn't have the internet. People nowadays, if somebody tries to go right. around and get a score or something like that, everybody knows about it. Yeah. Um, but back then nobody had any idea. And he he thought it was so funny and so easy that he uh he thought it was like the guy who did the Ponzi scheme. <laughs> uh, so that's how he uh he got that name. And
0: just taking your money, yeah. Mm mm-hmm. mm. No, that's good stuff, man. That's good stuff. Well, how is it coming along? Should we expect uh, to be reading it here pretty soon, or what's up with that?
1: I'd say it's going to be 2015. Um, I'm finishing this draft of it. Um, I I kind of made a mistake. I did a couple of earlier drafts, and I got about three-quarters of the way along, and then I I thought, I know what I want to do with this, and I (laughs) started over again. And uh, that's kind of a terrible way to to do a draft of something, <laughs> but I'm doing a full draft of it right now. I've got another seven weeks of work on it to get this draft done, and then I'll go back and, uh, and clean it up, and hopefully at that point it will be ready to send out uh, to my agent and then hopefully sell it, but then I'll do another <laughs> pass on it and the editor will do another pass on it so we will get a bunch more work
0: done on it and then the but, movie yeah, right
1: hope by next year
0: <laughs> and then the movie then? and then the movie and the series
1: well actually there's a guy already who wants to do the movie <laughs> he did uh, oh what was that he got a bunch of those uh, the place beyond the pines
0: hmm
1: okay um, he did that and he did one called half nelson
0: okay okay
1: or was it Full Nelson, Half Nelson? Anyway, um, he's interested in, in the movie rights now, but we want to wait until sure, sure, um, yeah, you know, closer to the, the book and all of that stuff. Yeah, but yeah, you know, It's very visual. It's a, it's a wonderful time in mm-hmm. his life. You know, it goes from the twenties, which were very you know decadent and and mm-hmm. colorful and um, it, you know excessive. Yeah. Uh, into the depression. He was still making a lot of money, even during the depression. Right, right. Um, still traveling all over the place. So it, it really covers some some wonderful
0: time. That, you know, I have one more question for you, uh, before I let you go. Um, did you know or do you know much about his first wife?
1: Yeah, he married when he was young. He he got married right after his mother died, I think you know, within a year. Okay. And, uh, uh, her, his first wife's name was Beatrice. Mm-hmm. Uh, she claimed to be an actress. I've never seen any evidence of that, but I think her stay, stage name was, um, Beatrice Marceau. Okay. Um, Greenleaf's sister didn't seem to think that she was ever much of an actress. <laughs> um, but it, uh, I think he just, he just got married young and, uh, and it it wasn't until he uh, he met May, um, I think he and, he and his first wife had been kind of on the outs up until that point. But then when he met May, that was just it. That was it. Um, okay. And he uh, he married her just a few months after his father died. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And uh, his divorce went through at the end of 1924, I think it was Christmas Day or the day before,
0: and he married May within a week. Okay. And you mentioned something about this earlier. Do you think that um, perhaps the death of his father had something to do with the onslaught of his drinking?
1: Yeah, I I would say definitely. You know, he's a guy who kind of lost his childhood. Uh, His father, you know, like Hoppy. Uh, And like, if you think about a lot of other, uh, child stars, you know, you see them in Hollywood who are you know, very troubled in their later years. Sure. Um, but yeah, his, his childhood was sort of eaten up. Um, he was working essentially uh, since he was a kid. Yeah, this is and, very, true. Uh, very true. You know, day in, day out. And uh, there was a lot of pressure. And also just all that traveling and waiting around and stuff like that. Right. Compounded by. Uh, prohibition, in which it was almost, you know, like a patriotic duty to go out and drink. <laughs> and it was, you know, part of masculinity and growing up and yeah everything yeah. else.
2: It's very true. And all the
1: guys he was hanging out with were drinking. Sure. And then he had all these fans who wanted to buy him drinks. Yeah. And if you were going to the popular place in town after you did an exhibition, well, they'd take you to the club in town. Yeah. Um, and so it, it wasn't like he could really get away from it but I think uh, you know it's it's pretty clear that he needed it uh, to play at some point yeah. but I think it's also clear that uh,
2: it's it's you know it's eventually
0: what killed him right 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 well I think you're right I think it got to the point where he probably needed it just to keep his hands steady you know you know if sure. you if you drink that much and then sure. don't drink, then you become a shaky mess. And so, you know, obviously that's not a good idea if you're uh, a professional billiard player. So
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we still see that now. I mean, you know, go to Derby City and go up in the action room and you see guys up there playing for three or four days and, you know, they're on some kind of substances or combinations of substances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um And, you know, that's what's keeping them going. Yeah. Um, but, uh yeah, I mean, Greenleaf was just a, a chronic alcoholic. It's really, really sad, uh, that part
0: of the story. It is. It's an American tragedy, you know. Uh, it's one of those, uh, the bigger they are, the harder they fall kind of a thing. You know, if it was just an average Joe that wasted his life, then, you know what, I don't. nobody would really take notice of that particular individual. But uh, because he was so great... It makes it just that much more tragic in the end, you know?
2: Yeah. Yep.
0: All right, JD. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I'm sure that you will let us know whenever your uh, writing is done. Uh, Please do. And uh, the best of luck to you, sir, in 2014.
1: Thank you very much, David.
0: Yeah, no problem. We will talk to you again soon, I'm sure.
1: Okay,
0: thanks. Bye-bye. All right, take care.
4: Hi, I'm Scott Lee, PBIA instructor from Largo, Florida. And I'm Randy Getlicker,
5: PBIA Master Instructor from Dallas, Texas. And welcome to the One Minute
4: Pool Instructor.
5: Yeah, this has been a, a fun series, Scott. Uh, this uh,
4: next subject is really a serious thing for us. Well, yeah, what we're going to talk about this week are the uh, five great stroke robbers, or uh, what we also know them as the common cueing errors. Common cueing errors. The common cueing errors. So what's the the first one that we look for Randy? Well in school you know we're going to look for all five of them, but I think the number one common
5: cueing error that that, uh, non-educated pool players make is not keeping their elbow steady. Uh, Let's just refer to this as an elbow drop. Now remember Scott, and, and we know this, you can drop your elbow at three different parts of your stroke. You can drop your elbow before you strike the cue ball, you can drop your elbow while you're striking the cue ball, or you can drop your elbow after everything is done. The first two, we—that's what we look for. Right. Are you moving your elbow before or during? Because after contact, the cue ball is gone, and what did you say—a thousandth of a second? thousandth of
4: a second. Yeah. So a quarter of an eye blink. First thing I look for is what is the gentleman or the the student's elbow doing? Right. I think that's great. Uh, the second common cueing error or stroke error that we look for is uh, the jerk. And the jerk is what we refer to as the person who has way too fast of a backswing. When you jerk the cue backwards, and again this is a very common misconception is that the backswing should be as fast as the forward stroke, but when we pull that cue back quickly it's virtually impossible for us to change direction and accelerate through the ball without uh, realigning and regripping and, and completely uh, taking our whole process out of a coordinated routine. So it's very important that we have a smooth backswing.
5: So we call that jerky backstroke the jerk. Right. Well I think the third thing I look for then is, and you mentioned it earlier, is the on train cue. Here a person will come in, a student will come in, and they'll take one warm-up stroke, then three warm-up strokes, then two or three or four warm-up strokes, and and there's an old uh, misconception out there that if the shot is tough I take more warm-up strokes. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, We need to have a consistent amount of warm-up strokes to the cue ball. Now, You can always recycle that. Absolutely. You do three
4: warm-up strokes and aren't comfortable, do three more warm-up strokes. Yeah and the the reason that we don't want to do uh, different numbers of warm-up strokes on different shots is that we we are unable then to create a a subconscious routine because we're doing it differently. Well that's where you hear the people come back and say
5: "Uh, I hit the ball and I wasn't ready. Well because you don't have a number of uh, warm-up
4: strokes. Absolutely. So, the next one we're looking for is what we call HD Grip. Now, that actually works uh, differently for two kinds of players. In one case, HD stands for Hand of Death. The Hand of Death. This is the player who clamps down tightly, clenches their cue, as they go to strike the ball. The other person is what we call Harley Davidson, and that's the person who twists their wrist uh, as they strike the ball. Are they related? They are related. Uh, de- definitely, uh, both of them are a poor preparation for letting the cue do the work. How should you hold the cue? Lightly. Lightly. Alright, so we've got the elbow drop,
5: we've got the jerk, we've got the on on-train cue, and, and the horrendous hand of death. Right. <laughs> and last but not least, and this sounds silly, but there's a thing called snapback draw. And I've seen people teach it this way. To draw the cue ball, you have to accelerate through the cue ball and then snap the cue all the way back. Like that snapback
4: is going
5: to put, what, more spin in the cue ball or something?
4: Well, this Uh, is something we see from an awful lot of players and it's uh, not even related to the skill of the player. I've seen experts who still pull the cue backwards.
5: Yeah, the cue ball leaves the cue stick in in one one one-thousandth of a second. Can you snap it back? Well, of course you can. But you've got to realize, if you're going to snap the cue back, you're now decelerating your cue into your draw stroke. So, so um, the snap back draw is not a particularly good thing to, to see happen. So it's it's what we call one of the common uh, cueing errors. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to throw in there? Or are those the five that we look for most Those are the five time? that we look for for most players. How about that eye
4: pattern? Well, the eye is certainly in there. That's one of the things that we look for, uh, but but that's a, a separate component all right. uh, once we establish their template. What are we going to get into next week? Well, our next uh, topic will be uh, why come to pool school versus uh, buying books and videos. I buy books and videos all the time. Me too. But I go to pool school every day. <laughs> Me too. I'll see you next week. This is Scott Lee. And Randy G and thanks for attending the One Minute Pool Instructor.
6: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to AZ Billiards on American Billiard Radio. I'm Mike Howerton. Had a couple weeks off, but I'm back back in the saddle this week. Uh, joined by a special guest, uh, a fellow Phoenician, Scott Frost. How you doing, Scott?
7: Good, Mike. Always a pleasure to speak with you, buddy.
6: Well, I know you were on the show a couple weeks ago, but... Based on a couple conversations that you and I had had, we thought it was a good idea to come back on. You've got a special project you're working on, and we'll get to that in just a second. But first, uh, I understand you've got a couple of real big events coming up here in April.
7: Yes, um, I do. I, I went to Reno, I went to Derby, and I had my bonus ball segment there in Vegas. So I decided to take about a month off at my age now, Mike. But uh, anyway... <laughs> Decided to take about a month off, get things recouped up around here at the house, and then I'm headed to the $2,000 16-man event in Poplar Bluff, Missouri at the Smoking Aces pool room. And then after that, uh, the 24th, I go to the Monsters One Pocket event, which is a $1,500 entry fee, and that's in Wheeling, West Virginia. So I've actually I've been to Poplar popular Bluff. I went and played Tony Fargo on the road there, uh, Fifteen years ago, and I've never been to Wheeling, West Virginia, so it'll be an experience.
6: You know, it's interesting. You mention at your age, jokingly. Um, I've been going over some old uh, historical information, that going over payouts for old events from the late '90s. You were you were snapping off events way back then.
7: Yeah, you know, when you travel, I've talked to a lot of guys. Well, I I keep saying my age, and I guess I'm trying to get off that my age subject and just embrace it and run with it and hope that I can come back to 100% because I did take a break playing. But it's it's hard on pretty much any of the top players that are in my age bracket because they've been doing this for a long time. And it's like you're running like hell to come in last because every event you go to, if you don't finish in the top three or four, it's tough to make money we all know that so you compound the stress and the traveling and the money and the bills are still coming in at home and that stuff will wear you down over time it it really will wear you down and I'm I'm a big believer in rest mental preparation so I need my time
6: that kind of leads into what you had talked about with the two thousand dollar entry tournament and the fifteen hundred dollar entry tournament do you think that's the direction that some of these tournaments are going in now?
7: Well, I'm a big fan of that, and and both promoters of both events don't. I don't even think I've spoken to them about this, but I'm a big fan of that because what that tells me, or what what that's leaning towards in my eyes, and I don't know if you could agree with me or not, if you've taken any thought into it, but poker. Okay, you'll see a lot of satellite tournaments and a lot of smaller events or two or fifteen hundred dollar entry fees. Actually those are decent size events. Okay, granted those pay half a million dollars to a million dollars, but I do like the, the big entry fees because at the end of the day the prize is bigger. And I think that it's a bigger draw for the public. And that's what we need involved. We need the amateurs and the public involved. And when you've got a bigger prize pool with a smaller event, like a sixteen man event that's coming up from Poplar Bluff First place is twenty thousand. Well, I mean that makes that makes eyes turn. So, I think they're heading in the right direction with that, at least for the meantime, because it's obvious that there's nothing uh, much greater than that happening for us at this point in time. And you don't worry
6: that that's going to scare away the amateur players who just can't afford that kind of a nut.
7: I'm scared to death. <laughs> I'm, I'm scared to death. But uh, what are you going to do? Uh, am I going to call the the guy and? popular bluff and say, you know what, I, I, I'm worried that that's going to, that since we're keeping the amateurs out, let's just not have that tournament. I mean, I'm scared to death, but but I've got to roll with the punches and, and I've got to eat. And in the meantime, if this is the only thing I can do to put food on my plate, then I'm going to have to do it.
6: Well, I would love to see something like that tournament go on with qualifiers, you know, taken from the poker idea.
7: I, I You know, it's funny, I was on Facebook uh, just a couple nights ago, and I noticed that the the guy running that tournament, Mikey McEwen, is actually holding a qualifier or was attempting to hold a qualifier just like a poker event, and he actually even called it a seat. the winner of the event. they're gonna have a small event, two hundred dollars each person each man puts up two hundred dollars and, and the winner gets a seat in the sixteen man event, which I thought was a real good idea, and that's a start. But the downside to it is it is a 16-man event, so it's obvious that you're not going to be able to hold qualifiers all over the country or you'll have no uh, no regular entries.
6: Right. I was a little surprised to see that you weren't at uh, Super Billiards Expo this week. I understand they're having a big one-pocket tournament up there.
7: It's really strange. That that event's been really strange for me. I don't understand it myself. Uh, but it's been, I've never been to that event, never one time been to that event. And, and all my peers, like Darren Appleton, I mean, a bunch of the guys have always said, well, why don't you go to that event? But it seems like every year I just I, I come off that ban of tournaments, and I've got a lot going on. I mean, I've got a lot of bills. I've got a girlfriend. I've got two dogs. I've got a cat. My girlfriend's in the school full time, and she works full time. So when I'm gone, she's already taken care of everything, and can't even do that. So it just seems like the timing is never right for for the SBE SBE event. It just doesn't seem like it's right, Mike.
6: Well, I mean, we've got a lot of events here on the West Coast, and and you were at most of them. Um, how did you? How did your year begin? <laughs>
7: Well, the Derby, you know, the Derby, I, I I kicked it off on the right start. In my opinion, I was prepared mentally as good as I could be. Obviously, I don't play a lot here in Phoenix as I'm doing other things, but I played a little bit and prepared for the Derby, and I finished third, and, you know, there was 298 players. That's that's a nice finish, and from there, I just carried it. Uh, played well in bonus ball. But that, the, the, those uh, playoffs were a little bit more like a coin flip. and I'm sure next season that will be better. And then Reno, I was knocking on the door in every single event. It just something funny happened. I lost three hill hill matches, two of them to get in the final four of the winter side, and I believe the nine ball and the uh, let's see, the nine ball and the ten ball. I'm not sure. I think I did a little worse in the eight ball, 13th through sixteenth. But uh, I, I was knocking on the door in all events. And then in the one pocket, U.S. Open one pocket, I lose my first round to Warren Camco. Come, come all the way through and lose to Shane Van Boning Hill Hill. I needed one ball, he needed six, and something freaky happened, and, and so I was out. But I've been happy with my finishes, and I'm knocking on the door, and I'm back real close to the position I was five or six years ago, when I was winning everything I played. So I'm excited.
6: Something that's got to make you confident with your game is it looks like you've brought on some new sponsors. Um, I understand you have a new case sponsor?
7: Yes, Roderick Suno with Volturi Cases. He's not from in, in the United States, but I noticed on Facebook this guy's work a long time ago. And, and it's just kind of odd. I just happened to notice his work, and at the same time he was messaging me on Facebook asking me if I would like to make a sponsorship deal. And I didn't hesitate, needless to say. I didn't hesitate, and I went ahead and took the deal. And, and I do have a new case now. This guy is top-notch. It's called Volturi Cases. And uh you can't get much better than what he does. Nothing but top notch no, nothing but top notch work.
6: Now if somebody wanted information on Volturi, where can they get that?
7: at, at this point in time, I don't I've been telling Roger he needs a website up and trust me folks, I wasn't uh, I wasn't a big Facebook fan myself, but now I'm addicted to it because a lot of good things have come out of it for me with along with Hunter Cole. We'll talk about that soon. But you can go, you can go to Facebook as of right now and and deal with cases dot or it is no, you just go to Facebook and it's VolturiQCases, and 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 the thing is, Mike, it is he is so busy and he's a one man army. He works out of his house. He does all the tool work by hand. So if, if you folks have ever had a chance to see these Q cases. You don't understand why it takes him so long, why he works by himself. You can't teach anybody what this guy does with cue cases. And I just got a beautiful one. I am real excited to show it off.
6: <laughs> well, you mentioned Hunter Cole, and that was kind of the main reason that I wanted to talk to you today. We're going to take a real short break. We'll be right, right back, and then I want you to tell me about the, what's going on.
7: All right, buddy. Sounds good. <laughs>
6: All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm talking to Scott Frost today. So, Scott, tell me about Hunter Cole.
7: Hunter Cole. Oh, boy. He's a, he's a great kid. He's 15 years old. He lives in Riverside, Ohio. He loves pool. And he's had an unfortunate series of events take part in his life in the last few years, um, starting when he was 12. Um, I've spoke to his father, and I speak with Hunter daily now. But when Hunter was 12, he had some issues, went into the hospital, long story short, because of cancer. He had an infection in his lower right leg. Well, they tried to save his leg, long story short. I'm not going to dwell on all the bad stuff. He lost it. They removed his leg from, I believe it's from above the knee up. It's, that's what it looks like to me on pictures. I don't, I don't talk to Hunter about stuff like that, really, because when we talk, it's just just about anything. But he lost his leg at 12 years old, and he had beat, or, or at least the family thought that he had beat the cancer. And, uh, well, obviously, it, it's gone bad again. So a few weeks ago, he, you know, he had a piece of something removed from his lung, and they figured it was going to be a simple operation. They can go just remove this piece of bad stuff from his lung. And when they were in there, they realized that it had already penetrated the lung, and gotten into his bloodstream. And this is cancer, is what we're speaking of. I don't know the technical terms, but I know that cancer has gotten into his bloodstream, and he, he now has bone cancer for for better or worse. And it's obviously for the worse. And at this point in time, you know, I just happened to notice a post that D. Atkins made on Facebook about this kid, and I know D. Atkins very well. Real good guy. And his post was nothing but cool things about this Hunter Cole. So I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to message this kid and, and tell him good luck and this and that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, my mind started working. I said, well, boy, it would be real easy if I like this kid to start raising money for him. And sure enough, we, we talked briefly, I think, the first day, which was probably about a week ago now. And I loved him. He's just so cool. Top notch class. He's, he's positive. He's just, he's got everything you'd want in a son. So it would be easy for anybody to take on the, uh, the task that I've taken on because it's very easy for me.
6: Well, and, and what have you done? You know, I've, I've noticed you, you did some stuff here in Phoenix and I see some stuff on Facebook. What are you doing to help try to raise money for him?
7: I haven't done enough, that's for sure, but I'm not going to stop. What what I did to begin with is I've, I've had a Q case. It's a just an old silver fox case, but it's a it's real comfortable case. I've used for like the last ten years. This case, if this case could tell stories, it'd sell a million dollar movie. But at the same time. I gave him this case, but I haven't given it to him yet. I've I've gone to pool rooms here, and and my my favorite pool room to go to in this this aspect is Mike Bates' pool room here in Phoenix, and it's Shooters Billiards. You're well familiar with it, and uh, Mike Bates is, I mean, he speaks for himself. He does everything in the world he can for pool players pool and anything associated to pool. So I took the case over there. They had a small event uh, not too long ago and, and just told the people Hunter's story. And I told them if they wanted to sign the case, they could donate anywhere from 5 to whatever they wanted, $5 to whatever they wanted. And I ended up leaving that place in about an hour and a half with $510. The case was covered in signatures. And I couldn't wait to get back home and tell Hunter about the situation. He was more than stoked, more than excited. And uh, so all of a sudden I had a case for him and 500 in cash. Then one thing led to another from there. It snowballed and posted that on Facebook. I had a ton of great responses. and I'm not technical savvy, so people that wanted to help and wanted to donate, I would just make a post and tell them the message you private on Facebook, and I would give them their home address. And they could send a, direct, a check direct to the family. And so, needless to say, I've got the address memorized. Do we want
6: to give that address, or should people just contact you on
7: Facebook? I at this point I've talked to Hunter's father and I think in good faith with people it, it, with this situation uh, if anybody abused this address there'd be an issue I I don't have a problem giving it out but the whole thing with this is Mike is I, I can give it out and these people can listen and they can say while they're listening to my statements or my words oh yeah you know when I get when I get done listening to this I'm gonna go write a check I don't want them to say it I actually just want them to do that you know if if you can take literally 20 minutes out of your life to help somebody that's uh, needs needs a smile with you know and i don't want just a check i'd like a small letter to him like you know good luck hunter best wishes we're pulling for you or something like that because at the end of the day hunter really doesn't even care about money you know but his family needs it so i don't mind giving the address out if you want me to go ahead and shoot it mike sure go ahead Okay, for everybody at home, his name is Hunter Cole, H-U-N-T-E-R-C-O-L-E is his last name, Cole. It's 900 Sandpiper Court, Riverside, Ohio, 45424. 900 Sandpiper Court, Riverside, Ohio, 45424. And you can make that out to Hunter Cole, or Brian Cole. If you make it out to Brian Cole, it's B R Y A N. But uh, you know, I really appreciate you having me on here, and it's it's a big deal to me because at this point in time, I believe I've raised over two thousand dollars in cash. I really don't know what I've raised because I have some friends in higher places, in bigger cities, that are business people, and they've taken it upon themselves to mail him a check him themselves. So. You know, I hope the people out there do what they feel is best in their heart to do. It's not like this kid is uh, 80 years old and had a great life. You know, he's 15, and he loves pool, and and he's positive. He's not one of those guys that's down and out every day looking looking for the bed, ready to just uh, call it quits. He's going to fight, and we believe that he's going to pull through this.
6: You know, I'm curious. Pool is notoriously a a solo game. I mean, it's it's you out there on your own. The person you have to answer to is yourself. You don't, and there are certainly exceptions to this rule, but you don't normally see a pool player like yourself getting behind a cause like this.
7: Uh, That's funny. You, th- you know, I'll cut you off, sorry, Mike, but I've got a <laughs> thought. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because somebody made a comment on one of my posts on Facebook last night. It's it, it, what did they say? They said that I'm their number one pro player now, and it's great to have a guy like me in the pool world. Well, going back to what you said, I don't believe this has anything to do with pool. Um, the, the minute I made my first phone call to Hunter, we were buddies. Like I, I just I could talk to him forever. I think it comes from my background, and I think it comes from everybody's background. I think that I think that it depends on how you were raised, and I'm not ju- I don't judge anyone. But when I was younger, you know, I used to it was I used to beg my mom. I remember pulling on her sweater during Christmas time, and we would take leftovers to all the homeless people that were living all, along the rivers in Des Moines, Iowa, and I would force her to take me. I never forget it. we had this van, and we'd have all these leftovers. I know she made extras for me every year because she't want to take these people, but we would drive around town in this van. it'd be snow and sleet and icing and it was terrible, but it was great. it was awesome because we were helping these people and and to hand somebody some food when it's uh two below zero out, uh their eyes light up, you know like it's Christmas, and it was, so I believe that. It it comes from much, much deeper than just uh, a pool player like trying to help a kid. I, I think that everybody's got a lot of give in them, and I think that that's what Americans themselves should do. When you see somebody down, you need to help the guy. You know what I mean?
6: Absolutely. I, I'd completely agree with you on that one.
7: So I I don't necessarily think anything has to do with pool. I don't think basketball players like LeBron James donates money. I mean, I think it comes from where they come from. Uh, that's That's my whole point.
6: Either way, um, you know, I've got to applaud your effort. You really seem to be getting behind this and and doing a good thing. You know, I, I, I've seen some other players who look to be getting involved probably after seeing UND getting involved in the beginning, but you really seem to be taking this to heart. And, and it doesn't, it's not just a, I'm going to work on this for a day and then be done with it. I mean, you really seem to be taking taking ownership of, of this.
7: Yeah, I'm I'm in it for the long haul. Uh, I've got that tournament in April, and I promised him I, if, if I, I invited his father and him to the Monsters' One Pocket Tournament in West Virginia, and if they can make it, I told his father I'd love to have Hunter in my corner through that whole tournament. I think that'd be pretty awesome, and I'm sure he'd love it. And... To touch on the other, other subject, Mike, I've, I have. I've contacted several top players, several of my peers, some friends, some acquaintances, to, you know, just to sh- give Hunter a shout-out. You know, he, he doesn't, like I said, he's not necessarily worried about the money as much as his father probably is, but he would love to hear from anybody. You don't have to be a top player. You know, he just wants somebody to make his day go by faster, some, something to get his mind off of what he's got to deal with every day and so I think that's a big thing that's why I always say when when people I've got people calling me because I post my name my phone number on Facebook and I always say listen you can write them a small check but more importantly write them a small letter too
6: it's it's a great cause I'm real glad to uh to give you a chance to talk about it here on American Billiard Radio and I hope you'll come back and tell us what you're doing down the road and and how this whole thing goes with him
7: Mike, I appreciate you having me, and I want to slip in one other thing. There's a, there's a girl I've been talking to on Facebook, and tons of you people have helped out. But her name is Amanda Robinson, and I just found out in Hunter. If you don't know, because I know you're going to be listening to this, you're getting two Reds tickets coming up soon. You're going to get to go to the Reds baseball game, so uh, you're making me more jealous.
6: <laughs> All right, Scott, thanks a lot for joining us today, and hopefully uh, we'll have a chance to talk to you again real soon.
7: I appreciate you giving me this time to talk about my buddy. All right. Thank you, Mike.
6: Thanks. Okay, everybody, that's it. Remember Hunter Cole. Um, Scott, one more time, give us the address.
7: 900 Sandpiper Court, Riverside, Ohio, 45424. And I don't have it wrote down, folks. That's off the top of my head.
6: (laughs) All right, everybody. uh, If you can't send a small check, it sounds like a small letter would be even better. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Scott.
7: Thank you.
3: I started out believing the universe was space, that all the solid objects were founded in full grace. I started out believing that earthworms could not crawl, that music plays, a donkey brays, dogs have days, horse has neighs, and everyone has a ball. But it's a duct tape ball, gooey, gooey, stringy, chewy, mushy kind of ball, rap, flap, tap, sap, constantly moving, ever oozing, sticky, stringy.